Proverbs chapter 6, there is a Christological way to see Proverbs 6. I kind of tempted to just chuck my sermon and just show you just Jesus in Proverbs 6, but let me see if I can get there by the end. The, the title of the message today is The Hot Mess Express, and I want to go over just a quick history of what a hot mess is and how it came to be. Uh, the first idea of hot mess was in the 1800s, and it was simply the kind of food you would get when you were in the army that was hot, and it was a good thing. Uh, it slowly became kind of the gloopy hot stuff, you know, hot mess, like oatmeal. Oatmeal was hot mess. And then by the 1900s, some pivot took place where it began to describe a chaotic situation or a confusing or a disordered person. In a book on Andrew Jackson, written in 1912, the author described the president as a man pretty apt to make a hot mess of things, given his temperament. And now the term hot mess, which feels super modern but is not, describes something or someone who is both chaotic but also somewhat attractive. Jack in the Box had a burger called the hot mess. And it was a burger full of all kinds of peppers and super gloopy cheese and it was the kind of thing where you knew that if you ate it, you'd pay for it later. And that was sort of, I think, the best way to think of what a hot miss is. It's something that has some attraction, but also something that has all sorts of really bad consequences down the road. And the Bible, in the book of Proverbs, remember, Proverbs is helping the simple learn discernment and prudence. And so the father in the book of Proverbs, the teacher, tells his sons about people to avoid precisely because they are the uh, relational equivalent of, you know, a 12-pack of White Castles, ill-advised on a late Sunday night. There was a, a, a tweet that went out from Taco Bell that said, we are putting the Mexican pizza back on the menu full time. And then there was a tweet from the national head of the National Plumbers Association that said, we stand ready. <laughs> we stand ready to accommodate this decision. Proverbs says, there are things that look attractive, watch out for them. And really from chapter five through chapter seven, the main hot mess in view is the adulteress. And uh, there are a few moments in Proverbs chapter 6 where the father expands the category to include more than adulteresses. And I want to walk, walk with you through those this morning. And the first kind of hot mess to avoid is the no boundaries borrower. The no boundaries borrower. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, and do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. So this text is envisioning an associate, a neighbor, a stranger, someone who is seeking to borrow more money than seems wise to the lender. And that's really key. What's going on here is someone who is seeking to borrow more money than the lender who makes money by lending money thinks is appropriate. He sees this person as too great of a risk. 
and the lender, who is usually pretty good at predicting risk, otherwise he wouldn't have money to lend, feels that this prospective borrower needs or is wanting to bite off more than he can chew. And so the lender says, if you want this money, you have to have someone who has more credibility than you do, more financial capacity than you do. We call those people co-signers. And this proverb is saying, don't do that. And it's specifically saying, don't do that for, some, for your neighbor. Don't do that for a stranger. Um, you, if you do that for a child, for instance, you just need to understand from the beginning that completely permitted to do that, it's your child. You're going to suffer if there's child suffering, right? Like, you're permitted to do that. You just need to understand that you're owning, you're owning all of that risk. And the, 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 the proverb in verses 1 through 5 says that this kind of person is a hot mess because they are wanting to couple their lack with your resources, your reputation, so forth. This is likely someone who is out kicking their coverage and probably not wise to borrow the money they're trying to borrow. If lenders say, hey, I, I don't really want to lend you this money, once again, what do lenders do? They, they, they lend money. They make money by lending money. And when a lender says, no, no, thank you, um, that's, a, that's a sign to be heeded and thought through. And so the first hot mess that this chapter discusses is what you'd call the no boundaries borrower. They, they are undeterred by being unqualified to borrow the money, and they find someone, some nice person like the people I'm looking at this morning, to ask if they would co-sign and, and adjoin their resources to make this loan possible. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we proceed. The second kind of hot mess presented in the text is found in verses 6 through 11. And this is a hot mess person that isn't outside there somewhere in the world. This is a hot mess person that's inside you. This is a hot mess version of you. Listen to verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So the first instance in verses 1 through 5 is of some guy who's like, hey, I really want to get this jet ski. I really want to get this jet ski. They won't lend it to me even at 25% interest. Um, so could you co-sign for my jet ski? You're like, you are a no-boundaries borrower. The second person isn't a person out there somewhere trying to buy a jet ski. This is a person inside all of us that simply likes to be lazy. And this is also a person you must say no to. This is the second kind of hot mess, and it's one that's inside, not outside. Most of us have some sort of internal, a few of us don't, by the way. Most of us have some sort of internal Hakuna Matata voice. Um, and he doesn't necessarily mean any harm for us, but he shouldn't be allowed to drive the car. Like, that just chill out version of you can't be in charge. And, and so that's the second hot mess to, to avoid in the chapter is the, the, the Hakuna Matata version of you, the, just, the just relax, the just fold your hands, a little sleep, a little slumber, never hurt anybody. This is the second hot mess to avoid. The third one is more um, nefarious than those two. In verse 12, you see... Uh, another kind of hot mess person to, to, to avoid. And this person is described right at the very beginning, a worthless person, a wicked man. 
goes about with crooked speech. We'll call this person the worthless winker. He goes about with crooked speech and winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil. Let's just pause there for a moment. What's all this, you know, hand gesturing and so on and so forth? You know, uh, one of the ways that I, I helped support the church plant that I was involved in last uh, early years, back in the early 2000s, was I drove a bus for disabled kids. And um, uh, it was a rough job. Like, it, was like a, it was a very taxing job. Anyway, uh, very stressful because you want these kids to be taken care of and they have high needs and so on and so forth. And there was this old, hard woman who lived in her whole life in East St. Louis, and she had seen just terrible things, lost children to, you know, gun violence and so on and so forth. And, uh, and she was just a rough gal. Anyway, one, she was my assistant on the bus, and she would take care of these kids. The only thing is, she had literally no compassion left. She had lived in the ghetto for too long. She was like 80 years old, no compassion left at all. So she was not the greatest assistant. Anyway, um, we would work together on this bus, and we had this little girl who had uh, developed some sort of a sickness and lost her hearing and um, essentially couldn't hear anymore, couldn't read lips, and also couldn't speak anymore. Some, some kind of disease that just ravaged her whole ENT situation. So she was older, like 10, and she had to learn sign language. And she's sitting on my bus one day after school. She just got done with a lesson, and, uh, and uh, she starts, she's practicing her sign language. Well, Cora, my, my, uh, my assistant, who's like lived up on the mean streets of East St. Louis forever, she starts yelling at this girl and saying, stop flashing them gang signs. And like, just like really getting onto this girl. <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 this is, this is sign language. She's not joining the Crips. Like she, she, <laughs> she's learning how to say thank you. <laughs> anyway, um, what's the person in this passage is a person who is using what, for lack of a better word, Gang signs. It's essentially a person who is super sneaky, not upfront about all their sedition and their, their wickedness. And they're basically, they're always working the angles to subtly communicate the inside agenda. While they present themselves as one thing, on the other hand, they are evil. And it says in the text that they are continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. And then the next verse says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are abomination to him. And I think the idea actually with this text is that this person in this passage is all of these things. Seven things that are abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. And I think the idea is that's why this guy's so worthless. He's all of the things God hates. Now, these folks can be attractive because they promise something that we all kind of desire, and that is the inside, to be on the inside of an exclusive club. Because he's playing a game at two levels, and he's one just kind of dealing with people as people, and then he's also playing this other game of chess and manipulation, and he's got two different motives, we can be attracted to that kind of person because we're attracted to the idea of us being on the inside of the scheme and not on the outside. And this is what gossip and slander really are, by the way. And that's why they fit within this context of things that God hates and also things that... Um, 
things that are divisive and that break up brothers. There's like the culture of gossip. You just need to really be watching out for it because what's going on there is it's appealing to your desire to know the secret things. We'll talk more about that in a moment. So that's the third hot mess. And then the fourth hot mess is what you could, I just call the fiery fling. Um, look at verse 23. For the commandment is a lamp and a teaching a light and reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes for the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and clothes not to be burned, and, and his clothes and not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. So you have these four hot messes, and they're kind of, it's somewhat obvious why they would be attractive, and also very clear why they would be disastrous, right? So now let's ask the question that's sort of underlying this question, that is, who are the people that are the most vulnerable to getting caught up on the hot mess express? Like what kind of people are most likely to wind up on the hot mess express? And there's really not uh, one way to talk about this that totally helps us understand it. So I'm just gonna kind of build a collage of different personality traits and difficulties. And you could say that on one hand, the people who get on the hot mess express are gullible but there's also something that you could describe as like a Gnostic pride. What is a Gnostic pride? Gnostic pride is the pride in knowing what others don't. Um, the reason why that causes a lot of people to be deceived is, is that there are some people who see themselves as seers. And these people are really susceptible to being tricked because the warning signs of the hot mess is super obvious. But the seer, they flatter themselves because they can see deeper than everyone else. And so you've got this person who's obviously a problem, and their whole life just kind of spells out problem. But the seer is like, you know, I see deeper. I see deeper. I see more clearly than everyone else. I see that you're not what everyone else thinks you are, and so on and so forth. And that's a Gnostic pride. There's this ancient category of people who, are, who feel pride in seeing what others can't see. And, uh, and so that, that's one of the many ways that you could be, fall for hot messes. Um, in, in Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy in chapter 3, and he says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with deceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, it would seem that these people would never seduce anyone. But it says in verse 5 that they have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. And Paul says to Timothy, avoid these people. But look at what it says in verse 6. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. And then it describes these women, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. What's going on here is someone who is great pride in being a knower. 
and knowing and, and learning and reading and more and more and more information and more polls and more quizzes and more, more of all of it. And there's like actually a, a fascination with knowing and seeing and discernment. And it's actually in that fascination and in that pride that they become seduced by these hot meshes. Because everyone else can kind of tell them, hey, this looks like a really bad situation. They're like, yeah, but you just don't see it the way I see it. You just don't see it as clearly as I see it, and so on. Uh, it causes you to be really um, resistant to counsel because you always see the angle no one else does. Um, another way of talking about this is like people that are just bad at boundaries. You could say that the person that's most susceptible to the hot mess situation are those that do not know how to establish and keep healthy boundaries. But all of the hot messes in this text are trying to go places in your life where they don't belong. One of the ways that um, Proverbs talks about the adulteress is to call her the strange woman or the forbidden woman. It's the same Hebrew word. And it just means someone who's trying to get in some place they're not supposed to be. It's not like you really met many strangers thousands of years ago. Like all the, you pretty much know all the people. Uh, it wasn't that this person just appeared out of nowhere. It was that a person you probably knew all along, and this is very true how adultery works, a person you probably work with starts entering into an area of your life that they don't belong in. They're a stranger for that area, right? And so one of the things you'll see in this passage kind of as a total um, theme is Hot messes are always trying to get into an area they don't belong in. The, the, the no boundaries borrower is trying to like enter into your finances as, as a beneficiary and that's, they don't belong there. Like you're welcome to give them some money and that be up to you, not them. And they just are trying to get into a place that they don't belong. And so the sluggish self is trying to take care, like enter a part of your life that they don't get to be in charge of. There's a moment in the day when I give my sluggish self the steering wheel. It's 10 p.m. And then my sluggish self gets the steering wheel. And he gets to drive the boat or the ship or the car until 5.30 a.m. And then my bladder drives for about five minutes. And then, and then my coffee drives. Like, what the sluggish self in that section is trying to do is he's trying to run parts of my life or your life that he doesn't, he shouldn't be in. He's trying to invade boundaries, uh, uh, go past boundaries that are not appropriate. The worthless winker, the schemer guy, he's doing the same thing. He's trying to gain your trust. He should not get your trust. He's trying to enter into your circle of trust. He doesn't belong there. You shouldn't let him in there. And of course, the adulteress is trying to get into a part of your life that she does not belong in or he does not belong in. Now, if you can do faith-filled, Bible-based boundaries, you will keep hot messes at bay. It's just really hard to do them. It's really hard to do faith-filled, Bible-based boundaries. For one reason is it's very difficult to know when our boundaries are godly and when they're selfish. I mean, there's just a lot of com com conflict, like, internally, if you are actually trying to honor the Lord. If you just want to live your life for yourself and use the word boundaries and it's an excuse for your selfishness, like, you can do that. But, like, for those of us that are trying to honor Christ, boundaries are kind of sketchy. That We know they're right. We just don't really know how to rightly implement them all the time. And we also 
don't always know how to communicate them. And I think one of the things that we see kind of throughout the, the, the Proverbs in particular is, is it's better just to be bold and frank and direct and then kind of have to come back and say, hey, I said that a little roughly, can I, can I, so forth. In, the, in, the, in this sense, the people who are actually interested in truth and the gospel and so forth, you get margin with these people. You're just trying to be honest. You're just trying to be clear and so forth. But the people who are not interested in those things, those, those people are going to respond differently. It's just difficult to know how to communicate boundaries. And the other thing is, is that we kind of know that if we tell people no, we're going to lose people. And, and just thinking through why someone would leave because you said no, it really should make it clear to you that they are a hot mess. Henry Cloud, who is kind of the guy who writes about boundaries, and I don't agree with a lot of what he says, but he's done more work in this area, and so certainly there's things to glean from. And also it's really funny that the guy with the last name Cloud, Vapor, uh, writes books on walls and boundaries. Um, anyway, he, he does say some good things about it, and one of the things he says is we can't manipulate people into swallowing our boundaries by sugarcoating them. And this is very often how we kind of communicate our no's. We try to sugarcoat our nose. It's like, that doesn't really work. Boundaries are a litmus test for the quality of our relationships. And a lot of us would just rather have poor relationships than no relationships. Um, those people in our lives who can respect our boundaries will love our wills, our opinions, our separateness. Those who can't respect our boundaries are telling us that they don't love our nose. They only love our yeses, our compliance. I only like it when you do what I want. And so, like, really good, healthy thing to do is to just tell people no. And you can always pull that no back, right? But saying no is a really good way of discerning who, who you're dealing with. Is this a person who is actually interested in you, the whole you, the whole you that says yes and no, or just the you that says yes? It, it's a good way to sort that out. So, we're just trying to nail down like what what is what makes us so susceptible to hot messes and you know one thing is like some of us have too much pride in seeing things that no one else sees and another one is we don't have the boundaries that we should have um, but I think and I did a lot of work to come to to you this morning with this level of certainty I think the text's main warning would be against people pleasing that would be the main warning. Uh, the main thing that this text wants you to see to keep you away from the hot messes is to make sure you are not bound in one way or another to being a people pleaser. Make sure that's not the way you're living your life. Um, there are different kinds of people pleasing, and I want to just highlight a few of them. One kind of people pleaser is someone who wants to appear open-minded. They have made being open-minded their identity. They have made being reasonable their identity. It's not about a love for truth. It's about a love for the love of truth. Like it's, one, it's not about someone who wants to know the truth. It's about someone who wants to be known as someone who wants to know the truth. There's this kind of person who is, is essentially bought in to what is a good idea, and that is to be open-minded, but they've made it their whole identity. And those are some of the kinds of people who you could wind up saying they're people pleasers in a very particular way. They want others to think of them as being open-minded. 
There's another kind of people pleaser who has made an identity out of wanting to be empathetic or loving. That's the way they want to think of themselves, is I am loving, I am empathetic. And again, this is, all, this is a very good thing. It's even better than being open-minded. Being loving is being better than being open-minded. But in wanting to appear a certain way, you wind up sort of acting in ways that other people will say, yeah, that's a loving person. And one of the things that manipulative hot mess people do is they will hold your Christianity against you so that when you say no, they'll make it out to be that you are just not acting like Jesus would. And my response to them is always like, I really do not believe you know Jesus. I don't. So you telling me what you think Jesus would do, it's not very useful to me because I don't think you know him. Um, but then again, I'm not necessarily a guy who struggles with um, being indirect. So there's another, so there's a, there's another kind, and that is the person who's made politeness their identity. Again, politeness is a very good thing. It's just not an identity. It's not the thing you use to maneuver through this world. It's a thing. It's a good thing. It's a part of being a Christian. It's just not the same as being. So we, when we say people-pleasing, I want to be clear about some of the ways that I mean people-pleasing. You may have this desire to appear to others to be open-minded. You may have this desire to appear to others to be loving. You may have this desire to appear to others to be polite. Um, those are all going to set you up for hot mess situations. You are not really acting in a way that is going to keep you from being attached to difficult and manipulative situations. Now, I want to show you why I think this people-pleasing thing seems to be baked into the text to some degree. So the first one is, is that in verses 1 through 5, you see that rudeness is necessary for self-rescue. Rudeness is necessary for self-rescue. Verse 1 says, My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Uh, the, the phrase, go hasten and plead urgently with your neighbor, that's just the one Hebrew word behind the word plead urgency, and it's the word Rahab, and it's the name for a sea monster. So what do you do when you screw it up and you let someone in a boundary they shouldn't belong in? This text says, go to them immediately and act like a sea monster. Like, what does that mean? It means to be in a state of open contention with an opponent. Overwhelm, be bold. So if you have, if you have let yourself fall prey to a boundary-breaking situation, what, the, what Proverbs, what the Word of God is calling you to do is to go to that person and be rude. Be overwhelming, be bold, be a sea monster until they let you go. You know, it says then, it says, Flee, flee like a gazelle from a hunter. Gazelles are not concerned with being polite in, in the hands of a hunter. If they can get free by biting you, whatever, they'll just do whatever they need to do to get free. And so one of the things we see is, is that there's a whole group of people who are so prideful in their politeness that if they got caught in a bad situation, rather than go and beg for release and be humble and bold and impolite, they would just swallow it and they would call that godliness, right? This proverb says that's not what you should do. 
This proverb says that sometimes when you make a bad deal, the right thing to do is to go and humble yourself and plead and be impolite and be rude and try to get out of it. And you can see how a people pleaser would be prone to falling into the bad deal in the first place and then unable to obey God's word in the second place when they did fall into it. Because God's word says, you have to go be rude now. It's like, you got into this mess by being polite. You're not going to get out of it. (laughs) Go and fiercely ask for. Go and beg. Be an annoyance to this person. Humble yourself. The, The Hebrew there is to just fall in the dirt and flail, you know? Like, no, I don't want to be in this deal. You've got to let me go and so forth. And one of the things I've seen, especially amongst heads of households, is that they will sell out their families to be thought of as being polite. Like the better, the raise at work, like that you could get if you just were forceful and were direct and were uh, and confident and tried and prayerful and full of faith, the promotion, the other job and so on, you are choosing to be a people pleaser rather than to be a family protector. It's like, no, you go out and do the hard thing and humble yourself and risk failure to care for others. Because what you'll see in these passages is is that when we are conflict averse, we're just handing that conflict down the road to someone else. So one of the reasons why I think the people-pleasing thing is here is because the, the solution in the first section is you got to fight to get out of this deal. G.K. Chesterton used to say that living things swim upstream. One of the ways to avoid getting on the hot mess express is to not be hyper polite and agreeable in every way. Number two, um, there's the issue of working when nobody is watching that's baked into the next section of the text. This is the go to the anto sluggard and see that this ant doesn't have a boss. They don't have a supervisor. They're just working. If you are a procrastinator, one of the things that is probably going on in your heart is something that the Apostle Paul in two places, in Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3, calls eye service. It's ophthalmos. And right now in America, post-COVID and post with all the remote work issues, uh, ophthalmos is one of the most relevant ideas going on about work in the Bible. And what it essentially means is, is a kind of person who can only work when they know there are social consequences for not working. This is the opposite of a self-starter. This is the opposite of a self-manager. This is the kind of person who, as soon as the eyes are away from them, they cease to become productive. What's going on there? They're people pleasers. That's what, that's what Paul is saying in those two passages in Ephesians and Colossians. These are people whose motivation for work is the, um, is the recognition, the reward, or the approval of others. Um, and so if you find yourself constantly procrastinating, then ask yourself, what's the motivation difference between, let's say I'm procrastinating my sermon prep, but I don't do it until like, you know, the last day. What's the, a lot of pastors are that way. What's the motivation that changes? The fear of embarrassment. The fear of embarrassment's not very real on Monday, and it gets progressively more and more real, so that by Saturday, 
the fear of, motiv- uh, fear of embarrassment is high, and therefore I am motivated. Now, this, I don't do this, but the fear of, motiv- the fear of embarrassment is the motivator that I was waiting for to make me move. So what am I actually motivated by? Like, what is actually making me do things? I do things to avoid social embarrassment. I'm a people pleaser. My whole situation is that. And so if you are struggling with with procrastination, what's really going on is, is that the hakuna matata part of you keeps saying, it's, it's all fine right now. There's literally like no reason to try. And you just need to tell that person, nope. Nope, you don't get to, you don't get to drive the car until 10 p.m. or whatever, and um, you're not going to make this decision. So procrastination is usually someone's inability to work without immediate fear of social embarrassment, and that tells you that the person essentially needs social embarrassment in an unhealthy way to like do life, which is terrible. So they should just look at, camp out on that passage and just understand what, what God's will is. But there's this other layer, and this is the one that convinced me that people-pleasing might be the most appropriate application to this, and that is, is that when you go through these four instances, here's what you find. If the hot mess has his way or her way with you, you wind up in trouble with another person. Okay, so let's go through the four hot messes. If I lend money to someone or if I sign up as the co-signer to someone who's borrowing money and that co-signer defaults, who's coming for me? The lender, right? So my, my needing to be nice to the neighbor who wants the jet ski is really just banking conflict down the road with the banker, with the lender. I am deferring conflict with my neighbor, and I'm basically just, it's going to come to me again at the end, but not with my neighbor, but with my banker. And guess what I have to do then? Now I have a fight with two people. I have to fight the banker and my neighbor. So I've doubled my conflict by deferring conflict. The second section of the man who listens to the just sleep part of himself, it says that if you do that, poverty will come like a thief, like a robber. And so this is all a little more sophisticated thinking, but this is the personification of, of various things. And so if I defer, if I say, if I'm agreeable to the sleepy part of me, then one day I have to have a fight with a robber who will come, who, who is essentially taking all of my stuff. Um, the third one, if I let the worthless winker have a role in my life, what's the conflict that I, if I don't say no to him, if I don't kick him out, what's the conflict I get in the back end? It says in two places in that section that he turns your brother against you. So I've delayed conflict and I've doubled it. I went from just not saying no to the worthless winker, and now I've got the worthless winker and my brother who the worthless winker turned against me to deal with. And then, of course, that's the main theme of the adulterous section. If I don't say no to her, if I let her invade a boundary, she shouldn't. If I delay that conflict, then I wind up in conflict with who? Her husband. And also, like, poverty and a bunch of other things. And so the truth is, is that if you are conflict-averse, you, are, uh, you need to understand something about what's actually happening in your life. And I just need you to know this because this is, this is just the way it's going to be. If you're conflict averse, you have a bank account f- coming due. You have bills coming due. 
you did not escape those conflicts. You simply put them in the ground like they were seeds, and now they're going to grow. If, if you are living with people-pleasing as your identity, then be assured like a harvest of people problems are waiting for you. And one of the really unfortunate things that happens is, is that we don't always reap our own consequences. Sometimes people that love us reap our consequences. Sometimes people who walk with us reap our consequences. So I defer my conflicts and, and my kids have to pay for them or my fellow church members have to pay for them, or so on and so forth. And so that's what seems to be kind of the idea of this text. There are these hot messes. You just need to say no. And that no at the beginning hurts, but it's a clean no. If you are passive and let these things go on, you will reap additional consequences, and you'll be having to tell even more people no down the road. So what's the solution? Because... Like I said, it's not, boundary setting is put forward by the psychological community as a cure-all. It's not. It's not under the gospel. It's a feature. It definitely, it's something to think about for sure. It's, it's definitely in the Bible, but it's not a cure-all. And you just being super self-confident, that's not a cure-all either. What is the solution to people-pleasing? How do we actively live a life that keeps us safe from hot messes? Well, that's actually in our text as well in verse 20. My son, keep your father's commandments and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Last week we said that a godly offense is the best defense, that if you're proactively doing the right things, a lot of the possible wrong things just don't even uh, have the same allure or capacity to grab you. And here we see the right thing. And what is the right thing? What's the right solution to people-pleasing? The right solution to people-pleasing is not just you and your Bible. The right solution to people-pleasing is not rugged individualism. It's walking with other people Seeking to please them, actually, but a specific kind of person. The kind of person who can say, and we've covered this a few weeks ago as well, the kind of person could, who could say, God's word is my word. Essentially, the, 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 the fix, the vaccine for avoiding becoming a person who keeps winding up on the Hot Mess Express is to get on board with a group of people who love God's word and do their best to apply it to their lives in every single way. There are people who, could, who would tell you, do this or do, do what I say, and all they really mean is do what the Bible says. And those, that's the solution. The solution isn't individualism. The solution isn't just you and your Bible. The solution is to walk with people who can say, bind God's word around your heart and tie them around your neck. And if you will live in a lifestyle of Bible-centered community, where you essentially select your company primarily by their love for the word of God, you will find yourself over time being kept from a great number of these potential ruinous things. See, even people-pleasing isn't quite the right way to think about this. Because there are plenty of places in the New Testament where Paul will tell people, 
Hey, Philippians 2 is one you probably know. He says, make my joy complete. Do this to make me happy. And just some sort of rudimentary, unsophisticated thing of like, oh, it's people pleasing, doesn't fit. Because there are certain godly people that we can walk with. And when they say, make my joy complete, all they mean is, love Jesus, obey his word, pursue the truth, and so forth. And so the solution to like being caught up with people who have all of their own nefarious agendas isn't boundaries exactly. That's a part of it. It's not, it's not being totally uh, you know, individualized. That's, that's not the answer either. The answer is, is put yourself around people who love God's word. And what you'll find over time is, is that that culture... That culture actually winds up occupying your time and your heart and so on and so forth. So that's a very simple exposition of this passage. And I do think I have a little bit of time to discuss the Christology of this proverb. And I, I love walking people through examples of Jesus's diverse excellencies in particularly Old Testament passages. And I just want to walk you through this passage if this was just our attempt. If we just opened up Proverbs 6 and said, where's Jesus in Proverbs 6? And we'll end that with our celebration of communion. Well, you first you have this first section. Don't put up security for a neighbor. Jesus is our ransom. Jesus put his life up for ours. And the reason why it doesn't work out when we do that in terms of debt and so on and so forth is we don't have unlimited resources. Jesus, he bought us. He, he did, on the cross, sign up to pay our debt. And he paid our debt. And he paid our debt perfectly. And it, he didn't, it didn't come close to emptying out his reserves of righteousness. So you see verses one through five, and it's like warning us, mere mortals with limited abilities and so on. It's like, don't sign up for some kind of deal where you have unlimited responsibility to pay. And Jesus is like, I, I got this one. I can do that. And Jesus does that for us. He redeems us from the pit. He pays the debt we could not pay. The Bible says that we owe an un an, an immeasurable debt of sin, a debt of, of guilt to God. Jesus is our payment. The next section, which is verses 6 through 11, is the a little folding of hands, a little sleep, a little slumber. And I just think of all the times we see Jesus resisting the easy way out and choosing the hard path. Even there's that moment in Gethsemane where he is awake and praying and his disciples are uh, folding their hands, right? A little sleep, a little slumber. There are places where Jesus sleeps, say, at the bottom of a ship. And I just feel like those are examples of someone who is literally that hardworking, that he can hand over his sleep part of him to, in, in a boat and he just falls asleep. That's how hardworking Jesus is. Jesus is not lazy, Jesus emptied himself before he emptied himself on the cross. He emptied himself so much so that when it came time to carry his own cross, he literally had nothing left in the tank. So the first section I see, Jesus paid my debt. 
The second season, I, second section, I see Jesus did the work. The third section is about the silver-tongued, whatever, the, the winking evil. And I just think about all of the conversations in the Gospels where people tried to entrap him with hidden agendas and schemes and slippery words and lies and how even Judas lied his way into shedding blood and dividing the brothers and so on and so forth. And so I see how Jesus, like, he overcame the wicked, the, the, the liar, right? He fought. Sometimes when you read the Gospels, it feels like Jesus is walking through a snake pit. It's just slithering all around him, hidden agendas, jealousy, ambition, even in his own disciples. And he's walking amongst all of this, this massive pit of scheming liars. And of course, as we're told in Genesis 3, they struck his heel, but he crushed their head. And then I get to the last section, an adulterous woman. I'm like, where's Jesus in the adulterous woman section? And um, this is how we'll celebrate communion. Because in this section, Jesus is the jealous husband who has bought a bride for himself and will exact vengeance on all who sought to seduce his bride away from him. Proverbs 6.34 says, For jealousy makes a man furious. He will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. And this is actually a highly biblical portrait of who Jesus is in his regard for his bride an element of communion. At the end, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, for as often as you eat this, drink this, you celebrate, the, you commemorate, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there's a, a forward-looking element in the Lord's table. And I want to like leave us with this idea that we live in a world now full of snakes and we have to keep our head on a swivel until the day we die. But the day is coming when we will have rest from all of our enemies and perfect eternal boundaries will be set. We will not always have to be on the lookout for the wicked because one day we will know exactly where they are and where they must stay forever. Revelation chapter 22, which is actually a bride of Christ passage. Jesus says in Revelation twenty-two twelve, Behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside, boundaries, outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, and the murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So Paul says in the passage in 1 Corinthians 11, our, our, common, our common communion passage, that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so I want to leave you with the image of a jealous husband 
as you participate in communion, or as Johnny Cash would say, the day when the man comes around to avenge all those who tried to seduce his bride away from him. And then on that day, truth, beauty, and goodness will reign forever without rival or interruption. Please come.